0: you guys all think of yourselves as altruists. (laughs) I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying set that aside. Set aside your own self-conception conscious of what you are for a few minutes. Also set aside the moral color you put on the concept of altruism, being a praiseworthy or not sort of thing. I want you to just look at it from a distance as just a biologist studying whether something has feathers and think of altruism like feathers. And we want to just look at what it's like from a distance and try to understand it as a behavior. And then later at the end, we'll bring that back to to you, and what you care about. All right, so your distant ancestors were foragers. Uh, Your even more distant ancestors were primates. Primates live in very large social groups with relatively harsh politics. So they have big brains compared to most other animals because their politics is really complicated. Uh, they have to figure out which group they're in and who's their allies and who, which allies might no longer be allies and betray them and figure out who's worth having as allies. And uh, you know, groups that succeed and become the dominant group have a lot of advantages. And they have some mild degree of altruism in the sense that they like other people in the group and they want to help other people in the group. And often leaders have the most in the sense that they want to make sure conflict within the group is minimized so their, their alliance can work well against other alliances. Uh, So that's, in a sense, primate altruism. Humans are similar, except humans found ways to really suppress the harsh coalition politics uh, via norms, social norms. So social norms are basically rules about what to do or not. And the rules are enforced via tools and language, i.e., you could say, I saw him do this, and it violates the rules, so you could express a norm violation and tell people around it and coordinate on enforcing the violation. And you had tools which could kill people in their sleep. So for a chimpanzee or something, uh, if you hit them in their sleep, it's just the first punch in a fight, and it's not necessarily determinative. But uh, for humans, you can really kill people in their sleep. And so humans could coordinate with violence in order to really enforce norms. uh, And that allowed them to cooperate in ways that uh, chimpanzees couldn't and to create larger social groups that uh, cooperate better. But it wasn't via a general norm of help the group. It wasn't the generic idea of let's just do what's good for the group, and anybody who doesn't do what's good for the group gets punished. That doesn't really work, even in a small forager group. They had more specific norms. So they had norms against violence, against bragging. The key norms were against chimpanzees, like some guy becoming the top guy and telling everybody what to do. Strong norms against that, watching out for that at any stage. No sub-coalitions, no giving orders, etc. Share food, uh, care for sick and children, things like that. Specific norms which aren't the same as do what's good for the groups. The key thing we humans cooperate via specific norms much more than generic let's help and do what's good. Now, this history would make you think that uh, we wouldn't need big brains anymore. Because the chimpanzees needed these huge brains in order to manage this complicated politics. These norms seem to take away most of the advantage of that. We're sharing food. We're not beating up each other. We're not taking over. So what's the point of the big brains? You, you need some brains to, to handle the language and even the tools, but not... We have actually the biggest brains of all. So <laughs> something's going on. We're, we're managing something really complicated, and most likely it's social, because that's why they, primates have big brains. So what's going on with us? Well, most likely what's going on is as soon as we have these norms and a process for... For enforcing the norms, we start to figure out how to evade the norms. <laughs> how to pretend to follow the norms while not actually following them, and how to accuse other people of violating the norms, maybe when they didn't, and work with all those edge cases. And so, in fact, our abilities to reason and tell stories seem better tuned to accusing people of things or defending ourselves from accusations of norms than they are for just dealing with random situations. Uh, and that makes sense because that was really important. That was really central to surviving, and thriving was winning out in the who violated the norms argument <laughs> And so we even have ways, like, we coordinate with our eyes and things you can't quote. We use words in clever ways so that it sounds like one thing, but we really meant the other, and the people we talked to understood that. Uh, we hide things. Uh, you know, we have a rule against hitting people first. So we say, he hit me first with sore 3 and so I, it's all right if I hit him back. You know, and so we have a wide range of complicated mechanisms for managing, uh, pretending to follow the norms, well, not actually following the norms, uh, which makes some sense. Okay, In our world, we have a variety of behaviors uh, listed on the left, uh, politics, religion, military law, research, art, culture, school, medicine, ohms, uh, and we think these are noble things. We tend to talk about these things as relatively altruistic behaviors. We say uh, to praise these activities, we subsidize them, uh, we donate to support them, and uh, they are seen as good behaviors, and the people who do them and support them as good people who are, in some sense, altruistic for doing these things. Uh, It's a pretty wide range of behaviors, and as you can probably tell, the connection is often somewhat tenuous between these behaviors and somehow being good for the group. (laughs) Nevertheless, we, we do act this way strongly, but there's some discrepancies. I mean, I can give you a lot more, but I'll just list a few of them. So even though we subsidize these behaviors via government, we have all the support if anybody ever asks, should we have more of any one of these things, the answer is always yes. There's, there's never too much. They're, they're always good, and more would always be good. And No matter how much we spend on medicine, apparently, it would be good if we spent a little bit more. Uh, there must be somebody who didn't get a test they could have got, and that would be good, apparently. Uh, so, so suspiciously we hardly ever argue about which of these areas is more important. We hardly ever go to the high level and decide to prioritize between these. And even when within a level we prioritize, it's rarely actually in terms of what would be good for the world overall. So we argue over which research to fund, over uh, which uh, art to uh, pay more for, et cetera. But we rarely like say w- w- which of these would be good for the world. We-, we focus on more local criteria, more local rules about what would be uh, appropriate for that area. Um, we have some people who work, many people who work in these areas who seem to be doing getting... Paid really well, get a lot of respect, enormous amounts of status, and nevertheless, we praise them for being good people, for working in these areas, even though it looks like they wouldn't get more in some other area. It was just a general, you're a good person if you do these things. Um, and we end up creating all sorts of status ladders that we don't seem to necessarily need for other things. We make lots of groups and affiliations that we don't necessarily seem to need. There seems to be a lot of sort of excess behavior very various sorts going on here. So one way to think about all of this is to say there are many social functions that we can achieve with our behaviors. Uh, we can uh, not just help people. So, of course, we do actually care about some other people. And we do sometimes do things for that purpose. But the key observation is we have many things, we, functions we would like to achieve. And our behaviors accomplish many things. Now, that claim isn't that we're conscious of these things. The claim is that over time culture and biology has evolved to put us in the habit of doing various things whenever they are to our advantage, and these are some of the advantages that have created selection pressures on our behavior to make us do things some way versus others. So not only do we help people, apparently it turns out to be helpful in attracting mates to have certain sort of compassion, certain sort of feeling. If you can show that a certain sort of situation wells up feeling in you and you respond in a certain way, that's attractive. Potential mates. It very certainly as it turns out that's different for males and females, but both of them have that sort of thing. Of course, uh, donating and helping in anything sh- can show off many things, including wealth and smarts, strength, social contacts. Uh, all of these sorts of behaviors. Uh, not only can we just do things, but we can use that as an excuse to affiliate. We can like say, "Well, we need a meeting. Let's go have a meeting about it and socialize with each other and pretend we're doing something useful somewhere else." Right. <laughs> And We can associate, we can have a high-status person stand on stage and, and be do, give impressive words, and we can affiliate with them, and that, you know, we can go and tell other people about that. Not me, maybe, but somebody else. <laughs> uh, we can uh, give advice about what those people over there should do. It's a shame that those people aren't doing that other thing, and if only they would do the other thing, they'd be better off. Let's try to push them to do the other thing for their good, but of course, that often just shows that we're in control, and we have the power to make them do what we want, and that can make us look good. Uh, we can show our loyalty to each other by uh, arguing over um, who's better and who's worse and say, hey, we're good, the features we have are good, the features those people have are bad, the world needs more of what we have, let's, let's try to subsidize in the world more of what we have. And of course, usually our groups have some sort of values associated with them, some sort of social norms and the things they're identified with, and we can like, show our loyalty to our group by showing that we value the things the rest of our group. So we can just argue about values a lot and constantly find excuses for saying, yay us and boo them via yay our values and boo their values. These are all, I think you think you should admit, there's some degree of function of these things. That is, surely these have some degree of selection pressure in our behavior that push us to do things that achieve these things. And the question is just how much. So let me just use the sort of theory of the kinds of other functions we might be achieving to just identify some biases, I'll call them, in our behavior relative to the simple function. So the idea is, For each of those areas of life, including alms and medicine and things like that, we have a simple story about what it's for and why it's good for everybody. And that simple story would predict certain kinds of behaviors. And relative to that simple story, if we add in, well, but we're also trying to achieve these other things, then adding in those other functions we're trying to achieve will predictably distort our behavior in some directions. And here's a rough summary of some of those distortions. Uh, So obviously... um, One kind of distortion is instead of just doing stuff and accomplishing things, we want to make sure people see that we've done stuff and accomplished things because that's what gets us social credit among other people. So there'll be a distortion to being visible things. Uh, We'll want to do things that reflect on what we are and and who we are because we're trying to present our image. So uh, we will focus more on things that reflect our identity and our characteristics. So if it's about being useful or showing off our smarts, we might do something that shows off our smarts because, hey, that reflects on us. Um, Of course, us versus them, we will want to just slant things toward us. Uh, Kronstuhl-level theory is is a psychology theory about uh, what things look like when you represent them abstractly and nearly, and our ideals tend to be uh, more something in what's called far mode or an abstract mode, and we expect that when we're focused on values and things like that will put us into a far mode, which makes us think about grand abstract things more often than concrete, specific things, which means we'll be distorted in that direction. And we, if we're going to be useful, we just get a little more practical more often. Um, in general, uh, most decisions, like you know how to get to the grocery store, things like that, values matter some, but facts usually matter more. And I think that's also true in charity and other uh, high-profile prestigious areas. But nevertheless, we tend to find excuses to talk about values, because that's what lets us show our allegiance to some groups versus others. Uh, So we expect and probably do see excess discussion of values relative to discussion of facts that would make um, more often a difference in what we do. Uh, I think we also, there's obviously some dispute about this, but I think we also expect that um, often doing things later is more useful, or putting in resources to help later is more useful because uh, interest rates grow. But we have a pressure to do things now because now is when people are looking and uh, we can gain the advantage... Uh, over time of the reputation of doing something now and promising to do something later a little less useful. Um, I think we also have a a bias toward becoming a part of a community that talks to each other a lot rather than other mechanisms of figuring out what to do. I'm known for working in prediction markets, so obviously I think we specifically neglect concrete, specific bets in terms of talking. But even if we set that aside, we're reluctant to sort of set up competitive processes whereby... Different teams just compete, and the best ones achieve the outcome by competing, because we want to just argue a lot over what to do. (laughs) Because in the process of arguing, we can bond to each other, and we can show off our values, and we can achieve other things more by talking instead of other more concrete ways of betting. Um, When we're choosing what people to associate with, we could, of course, focus on people who have actually a concrete track record of accomplishing things, but we're often more interested in just affiliating with prestigious people who would be nice to drop their names, (laughs) Uh, and they're nicer people to hang around And so we choose people more on the basis of prestige than uh, would be useful for achieving things in the area. Uh, Interestingly, we also seem, um, we could, again, look backwards at a track record, or we can look forward at somebody's endorsement. And actually, it turns out that uh, if you have somebody who uh, has the potential to achieve X versus somebody who has achieved X, we generally are more interested in the first person the potential to achieve X than somebody who's actually achieved it, because we like endorsing and being part of that process. Uh, in donations or, or helping things, we want to like, be part of lots of things. We want to help lots of different things, although if we we're just trying to maximize, we might just do one thing. But conversely, in, say, academia or other areas, uh, when there's a, gra- a wide range of things that are possible to do, we often clump in a few areas where other people are, because by clumping, we can hang around other people. So we publish in areas where other people are publishing and uh, talk about other subjects other people are talking about. We neglect stuff between the clumps. Um, we uh, prefer to uh, be directly participation, i.e., on stage, visible versus off on the side in the background supporting, uh, for obvious social reasons that you get more attention and credit for being visible. Uh, and we even we prefer to do visible dramatic acts versus marginal acts. There's, a, there's an argument that, that I've given about how, in a sense, the, the highest benefit-to-cost ratio can be found by taking what you would have otherwise done and moving it slightly away to The better thing to do, because that hardly costs you anything since you 're near a peak, and it 's going to give a, a much larger ratio, but that means we do things that other people can 't tell really are helping, and we don 't get credit for that, so uh, we neglect that uh, relative to doing stuff that is visible and dramatic, whole big projects um, all right, so so far i 've reviewed what we know about human altruism, the various ways in which we might. Pretend to do, uh, be altruistic and helpful, but actually achieve other purposes, and we would presumably do a mixture. Uh, now let's get back to you. <laughs> um, so let's admit right off from the bat, uh, many people pretend to try to do more with charity and they're helpful things than they really do. They they are achieving these other functions, and therefore they're a bit hypocritical, and uh, that's true. And you can point that out, and you might enjoy that. But. Uh, <laughs> Let's pause and think about the consequences of what happens when you enjoy pointing that out to people. Uh, So let me make the analogy, like, when there's a foreign nation and there's some trouble for us, how could we respond to them? So the usual rah-rah thing to do is say, we need to get tough. If we get tough, they'll see we're serious, and then they'll back off. Of course they'll back off, right? Because that's what they're saying. We'll just back off if they show they're tough. Well... So sometimes when you act tough, they got tough, too. Sometimes the best response, if they're belligerent or something, is just to submit and say, fine, you can have it. Walk away. But that doesn't sound very loyal or very supportive of us to say, hey, give in. And the same way is true about arguing about these sorts of things. If you point out people's hypocrisy or that they are you know, not doing as much as they say, they could either submit. They could say shame. And they say, then they could start to do what they claim to do and copy what you do and lift up, live up to their ideals. That's the submit response. Or they could defy. They could say, who the hell are you? What makes you think you know better than me? And we have seen responses like that. Uh, make counter-accusations back. Of course, they could also just get discouraged and do nothing and, and do, walk away. Or they could claim, yeah, I'm selfish, that's who I am. And There's lots of other responses. So pause and think, when you confront people's hypocrisy, are you really thinking through uh, all the different possibilities and calculating that this is actually going to make them act better? Or just, does it just feel good to point them out and you know make yourself holier than thou? Uh, another thing to point out is, if you take altruistic activities, and you hold them up to a purity test, is this doing the very best? You're, you're not noticing that there's an opportunity for mixing selfish and altruistic activities. So say you have a charity ball. A charity ball, you know, produces, you know, has expenses for the charity ball, but then it, the money goes somewhere else. You could say, that's not so efficient. Why don't you just collect the money and hand it off? That would be efficient. But they could have spent money, less money, <laughs> so you might... Have a person who gives 10% of their income to an ideal charity and compare that to somebody who gives 30% of their income to mixed charities, which are like half effective, and that could do more help overall, you see, than the pure charities, which they give less to. So if you don't get on people's case for not giving all their income, why get on their case for not giving a pure, doing a pure thing and having other motives mixed in with their help, right? I mean, it depends on the actual numbers, right? It's not in principle bad to not do the very best thing, is the point, it uh, depends on how much you're paying for the other things. Uh, and also, you know, you, you, you draw people out and you make them mad at you by being holier than thou. There are some alternative strategies you can consider. One standard strategy, of course, is just do stuff and stop talking about it. <laughs> it's not talking about how it's better, just do it. Uh, another is, which, which I like to use, which is just to deny that you're being altruistic. You say, like I do, sure, my research is benefiting the world, but... It turns out if my research didn't benefit the world, I probably still do it. I just like this research. It just happens to benefit the world. You can like explicitly deny, and then they're no longer threatened by your claiming to be better than them, which is kind of part of the problem. Uh, of course, or you can even start at the beginning to say, well, we were thinking to do this, but then we were worried that maybe that looks a little too selfish. And so maybe, uh, or maybe that's too selfish and to motivated, and then I was worried about maybe doing a little better, but focus on yourself rather than other people. Finally, um, I've been hanging around here for, obviously, for a, a day and a half, and I think I can understand a lot of what's going on here in terms of youth movements in general. This group and community is very young, and it has a lot of the characteristics of typical youth movements, not just being young. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it celebrates and focuses on youth about things that youth have that are better than the old people. So there's you know. Young people have advantages and old people have advantages. Be young people have more passion. They have more flexibility. They have more promise and potential. They are able to like change and start all over again and reevaluate things from scratch. And older people, of course, have invested in making particular choices. They're more reluctant to switch. And those are some of the virtues of, the, of older people. So youth movements tend to focus on the virtues of young people. Duh. And uh, youth movements, have, of course, have many successful uh, examples in the past. And this could be a successful one. But there is a basic trade-off. Youth movements tend to be bad at getting stuff done immediately. Because they're just not very skilled, they, they, they aren't very capable yet, but uh, what youth movements, when they're successful, can do is build a cohort of people who create a strong sense of shared values that over time, as they become older and more capable and more influential, can then help each other to achieve their ends that they retain because they, reta- they were fu- built into them early on when they were pliable, and they have that. So that's something youth movements can do, and that's something you can do, too. But I mean, you should also expect not to be very effective now. <laughs> Because that's not what a youth movements do. Uh, so if you're, if you're okay with that trade-off, uh, great, but uh, understand there is that trade-off uh, in either relying heavily on older people with experience who know what they're doing, but then have a lot of baggage and want to take control of things and want to shape the values and discussion, or clean slate, let's think about us and start all over from scratch with our fresh, passionate, smart, uh, you know, capable, flexible, new generation and cohort. Never trust anybody over 30, right? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that's it, anyway. (laughs)